This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. I strive to make this podcast a safe and inclusive place for my listeners. If I've missed any content warnings, please let me know. Content warnings for this episode include strong language, mature themes, grief over the loss of a mother, one reference to rape and to the desecration of a body, depictions of human enslavement and corporal punishment, and casual ableism. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 308. Hello, listeners. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. Each week, I share a piece of my fiction with you, fresh off the writing desk. I'll also tell you about my successes and struggles as a writing professional. But first, let's get to this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 49 in my Metamore City novel, Making the Cut. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 259 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. In last week's episode, Sasha and Fiona finally uncovered the repressed memories that were buried in Fiona's mind. They returned to a day when Fiona was nine years old, when her mother, an unlicensed prostitute, got a visit from one of her repeat customers, an over-eager young telepath named Egan Hunter. Fiona's mother, whose name she does not remember, and whom Egan addressed only as Red, was a latent telepath, with just enough talent to disentangle herself from gestalts, but not enough to initiate one. This put Red in the rare position of being able to service both telepathic and non-telepathic clients. Fiona hid in the bedroom closet with the phone, as usual when her mother was servicing her customers, but this was not a normal visit. Without warning Red in advance, Egan had brought a friend, Victor Hincavos, who even at this young age was already a dark and dangerous figure. Egan cajoled Red into letting them stay, offering triple her usual fee, up front. As an independent operator, Red couldn't afford to turn away that sort of business. What followed was degrading and ugly. Victor enjoyed the pain and humiliation of his sexual conquests, and being forced into a gestalt with him was even worse. When their hour was up, a dispute arose between Red, who wanted them to get out of her flat as quickly as possible, and Victor, who felt he still hadn't gotten his money's worth. Egan tried to run interference between them, but the conflict escalated, and finally Red pulled a gun on them, ordering them to get out. In the closet, Fiona called emergency services. Meanwhile, Victor's rage got the better of him, and he attacked Red, using his telekinesis to twist the gun out of her grasp. Egan managed to pull him off of her, not before Red got in a solid kick to Victor's groin, and convinced the furious Victor to leave. Unfortunately, just then the police arrived outside the building, their sirens wailing. Victor, now terrified as well as furious, came storming back into the room and seized Red in a telekinetic grip. 
Fueled by rage and not controlling his power well, Victor accidentally snapped the woman's neck. Fiona burst out of the closet, screaming and crying for her mother. Victor and Egan were stunned and afraid. They hadn't realized there was a witness to what had happened. Egan tried to erase the girl's memory, but Fiona manifested her psychometabolic powers, throwing him across the room. Victor abruptly realized that they could turn this situation to their advantage. The collective would reward them handsomely for bringing in a foundling with such impressive powers. All they have to do is cover up the little mess with her mother. He immobilized Fiona with his telekinesis and carried her out of there. Egan used his telepathy to confuse a pair of police officers who met them on the stairwell, and they continued back to their parked skimmer. With Victor holding her helpless, Fiona again saw Egan leaning in close to erase her memory. Don't cry, little Red, Egan said. It'll all be better in a minute. Making the Cut A Novel of Metamore City Written in Red by Chris Lester Chapter 49 Now Sasha opened her eyes and saw Fiona jolt upright as she came out of the memory. Her body dripped with sweat, and she shivered under the air vents mounted above the bed. The shivering turned to trembling, which turned to shaking. Sasha felt the blood draining from her face. Fiona? she whispered. Fiona looked up at her, her emerald green eyes wide and almost uncomprehending. Sasha felt a fresh wave of horror at the memories they had just unleashed. Telepaths of her caliber were trained from childhood in the use of their powers— not just in how to use them, but in the ethics of what was and was not permissible. The power to alter the mind of another was a deadly serious matter, and the boundaries they were taught were supposed to be utterly sacrosanct. What Egan had done, acting as an accessory to murder, then erasing Fiona's entire childhood to cover up the crime. Sasha shuddered in outrage. There were no words for it. Egan's actions could not have been more abhorrent if he had raped the girl and pissed on her mother's corpse. Her mother. Oh, Eli. Sasha saw it in Fiona's eyes when the full realization of her mother's death finally struck home. It fell on her like an atomic blast, vaporizing the defensive walls that had held her emotions so tightly under control. The deep waters of her mind boiled and spilled forth, a torrent of feelings that rushed over Sasha and carried her along with it. She knelt on the bed at Fiona's side and wrapped her arms around her. Fiona responded instantly, clutching at her and burying her face in Sasha's chest. She sobbed and screamed and wailed as the nine-year-old girl inside her vented all of the grief and rage and terror that she had subconsciously carried but had never been able to express. Sasha held her tightly through it all, saying nothing. She just let her love fold itself around Fiona's heart, grounding her in the quiet, steady proof that she was not alone. 
It took nearly an hour, but in the end, Fiona exhausted her emotional reserves. Or perhaps she simply ran out of energy. She and Sasha lay side by side on the bed, quietly holding each other, as Sasha did her best to soothe the raw, aching hurt inside her. Egan Hunter, Fiona sighed, looking up at the ceiling. All these years, and I never guessed. Sasha ran a hand over Fiona's muscular abs. He's dead, you know. Her voice sounded subdued even in her own ears. Got himself killed on a mission this summer. Yes, Fiona said. Sasha had half expected some sense of vindication on Fiona's part, but the only feeling she got from her was a mild nausea. He was killed by Victor. I'm afraid that doesn't quite qualify as justice done. Tell me about it, Sasha muttered. She let out an exasperated sigh. Those two sociopaths were part of the hive for, what, fifteen years? Why in hell didn't anyone see what they were before now? I suspect they did, Fiona said wearily. Neither Victor nor Egan was permitted to join a breeding cell, even though both were near the top of the power curve in their respective disciplines. Both were career MID, and that sort of aggression is a useful skill in an operative. As I have demonstrated myself, she added ruefully. She shrugged. The hive probably thought they could be controlled. Sasha grimaced. And we saw how well that worked with Victor. She thought about Abby Preston, the telepathic prodigy whom Victor had disappeared with over six months ago. Damn it, that poor girl! I can't believe that Elder Bakhtavar just called off the search like that. What was she thinking? Fiona placed her hand over Sasha's and squeezed. Don't underestimate her, she said, her tone surprisingly warm and encouraging. Elder Bakhtavar's resources are considerable. Perhaps she suspects a leak within the hive and has ended the official search in order to circumvent it. Maybe, Sasha said glumly. I just wonder how much effort she's really going to put into this. I mean, if the elders never even bothered to figure out what happened to you, how can we trust them to take care of this abbey? I understand your concern, love, Fiona said. She smiled sadly. Now more than ever, actually. If not for what Victor might do to Abby, I would hunt him down and kill him myself. If Elder Bakhtavar can bring her home safely, I am willing to give her the chance. Sasha nodded hesitantly. And what if she can't? Or won't? Fiona looked grim. Brian asked you not to get involved in the hunt for Victor. Now more than ever, I agree. But I can't lose you! Fiona gripped her shoulders, like a woman clinging desperately to a life preserver. Please, Sasha. If Miriam can't get Abby back, we'll come up with another plan, but I don't want you anywhere near that murderer. The passion in her voice was so intense that it nearly knocked Sasha off the bed. She raised a shield against the torrent of emotion and managed to dampen it down to a tolerable level. So this is what an uninhibited Fiona looks like, she thought dazedly. This is going to take some getting used to. All right, she said, lowering her eyes and nodding. All right, Fee. 
For your sake, I'll stay off the front line on this one. She looked back up and raised her chin. Just promise you won't shut me out entirely. If Miriam brings you in, I want to know about it. Of course. Fiona leaned forward and kissed Sasha gently on the lips. Don't worry, love. If there is one elder left we can still trust to do what is right, it's Miriam. Miriam Bakhtivar stood with her hands on her hips, gazing down at the two thralls before her. They knelt before her naked, their faces burning with shame. Behind them stood Seralina Greyhaven, looking fearsome in her black leather corset, tight-fitting designer jeans, and platform boots. Her mother-of-pearl hair was bound back in a ponytail, exposing the elegant lines of her face, and she wore a black choker with a silver medallion. The medallion was embossed with a sigil that would mean nothing to most people, but to the vampires it marked her as Miriam's seneschal, the servant responsible for ordering the affairs of her house. Lena had chosen the outfit for herself, and while Miriam felt that the corset was a bit immodest, she kept her thoughts to herself. It was an obvious display of Lena's renewed self-confidence, and Miriam would readily endure any embarrassment to see that proud spark in her eyes again. Lena paced back and forth behind the two kneeling thralls, with the slow, measured stride of a jungle cat. She carried a long flogger, a multi-tailed whip made of soft buffalo hide attached to a wooden handle. She smacked it rhythmically into the palm of her hand in time with her steps. Miriam stood quietly and waited, letting Lena exercise the authority of her position. Peter and Sarah, Lena said. What am I going to do with you? The words fell from her lips like poisoned honey. The two thralls winced in unison. There are certain laws our mistress has set in place to govern this house, Lena continued. It is my responsibility to ensure that these laws are followed. I thought that I had made these laws clear to both of you. Was I wrong? Have I failed my mistress in this most basic of tasks? No, Miss Lena. Peter and Sarah said together. Ah, then you are aware that you have broken one of our laws? That is good. Now, can you tell me which law you have broken? Yes, Miss Lena, said Peter and Sarah. And that is? Peter and Sarah exchanged a sideways glance. No sex between teeps and Mondays. They looked up at Miriam imploringly. But mistress... They said, it wasn't his, Peter's, fault. We... The whip came down across their naked backs, eliciting a shared yelp. Lena struck with the falls of the leather cords, not the tips, so it merely stung the flesh instead of slicing it open. Still, Miriam felt the echoes of their pain and knew that it was more than sufficient as a tool for discipline. The thralls fell silent, heads bowed. The mistress is here to bear witness, Lena said sternly. She is not your advocate. If you wish to defend your actions, you may make your defense to me. Yes, Miss Lena, they said, subdued. Lena nodded once. 
After a moment, she touched the whip lightly to Sarah's back. Sarah, why was Peter not to blame? Though Sarah was addressed, they both answered in unison, as they must, given their condition. We lied to ourselves, the group mind said. We, Sarah, told our, told Peter, that Sarah was a latent teep. Why did you do that? Lena asked, her tone neutral. They both blushed. Because we... Sarah was attracted to him and wanted to be with him, and because we... she wanted to know what it was like. The gestalt. I see. And Peter? You never thought to question her story? Never sensed the falsehood in her? We... Peter wondered about it, they said. But Sarah is so beautiful that we... He... They trailed off. Yes, out with it, Peter. Peter wanted it to be true, they said quietly. Lena let the words hang in the air as she resumed pacing. The steady thunk, thunk, thunk of her boots echoed in double time by the pounding of the thralls' hearts. Miriam could feel them waiting for the lash, waiting for Lena to give them the punishment they deserved. They dreaded the pain, but they also longed for it. They knew that they had failed their mistress, and they silently begged for the punishment to begin so it could end that much sooner. But Miriam knew what they had not yet realized. There would be no end to the punishment for this mistake. Lena seemed to understand that, too and anger warred with pity across the elegant lines of her face. At last, she spoke again. So, Sarah lied to Peter so she could experience a gestalt, and Peter let himself believe that lie because he wanted to sleep with Sarah. Does that about cover it? The thralls lowered their heads a little closer to the carpet. Yes, Miss Lena. This despite the fact that both of you had been warned explicitly about the danger of telepaths having sex with non-telepaths. Yes, Miss Lena. Lena let out a short, exasperated sigh. I could whip you both red for this, but it would be like beating a child for playing near the fire when he's already fallen in. She shook her head, then looked searchingly at Miriam. Wait here, children. Miriam said. She gestured to Lena, and together they headed for Miriam's bedroom on the far side of the apartment. Two of the other thralls were at work in the kitchen. They looked up questioningly as Miriam passed, but Lena gestured for them to be silent. Lena entered Miriam's bedroom behind her and pushed the door shut with her back. Instantly, her air of authority evaporated, leaving her looking weary and troubled. You see why I called you, Lena said. Miriam nodded heavily, sitting down on the edge of the bed. I do. Lena knelt at her feet, not quite touching her, but close enough that Miriam could feel the warmth of her. Have you ever dealt with anything like this? Not personally, Miriam said. There have been stories, passed down from the early days before the collective— Honestly, most of them have the feel of urban legend, exaggerated to grotesquery to ensure compliance. 
Evidently, Peter didn't take them at face value. Still, how could he take a risk like that? He's twenty-five, not some addle-brained teenager. You'd think he'd have learned some impulse control by now. I fear that may be partly my fault, Miriam sighed. Peter could have exposed me to the other elders if he learned what I had become. I had to make him a thrall to protect my position, and the compulsions I needed to ensure his obedience were... extensive. She grimaced. You can't suppress a person's willpower that heavily without consequence. A haunting echo of memory ran behind Lena's eyes, and the half-elf shuddered. Yeah, you're right, she murmured. After a moment, she shook herself and asked, So what do we do, mistress? I can't let them leave the apartment like that. Miriam imagined the two thralls walking through a supermarket together, moving and speaking in unison. The thought was only amusing for a moment. Clearly not. She shook her head. We may have to separate them. Put one of them in a lead-lined cell to break the telepathic link. Lena perked up, looking a shade more optimistic. Will that put them back in their own heads? No, Miriam said sadly. They've joined into one personality, and Sarah's ego doesn't have the telepathy to find its way home again. The Peter and Sarah we knew are gone forever. Lena's face fell again. So what's going to happen when we separate them? Miriam shrugged. Theoretically, each of them will be left with a copy of the new personality. As long as we keep them from rejoining in another gestalt, their personalities will diverge with time, just from being in different bodies and having different experiences. But they'll both have Peter and Sarah's memories. It was more a statement than a question. Yes, and they're both likely to have some psychic dissonance from the memories that clash with their respective bodies. She turned her hands palm upward and shook her head, a gesture that barely hinted at how helpless she felt. This is all uncharted territory, but I wouldn't be surprised if I have to do extensive mental reconstruction on both of them, just to keep them sane. And you'll have your hands full keeping them away from each other, because they'll instinctively want to reform their gestalt so they can reconnect with what they've lost. She closed her eyes and let out a frustrated sigh. I failed them, she thought. I promised myself that I would protect these thralls like my own children, but I couldn't protect them from the way my feeding changed them. Lena shifted closer and lay her chin on Miriam's lap, wrapping her arms around Miriam's legs as she did so. Without even thinking about it, Miriam ran her hand over the woman's head, stroking it affectionately. Lena nuzzled against her in response, reveling in her mistress's touch. Is this what I've become? A creature that keeps people as pets and food? But even as she thought it, Miriam felt a warm satisfaction at the way Lena submitted to her. There was a rightness to it, a sense of wholesome pleasure, as they reaffirmed the hierarchy that bound them together. Miriam's power over Lena was absolute and unquestioned. She could demand Lena's life at any time, and Lena would be powerless to refuse her. But it pleased Miriam to allow Lena to live, to treat her with kindness and affection, to entrust her with responsibility, 
and allow her the freedom of self-expression. That was the key, Miriam realized. She chose to give Lena these things, and within the protective borders of Miriam's grace, Lena had blossomed like a well-tended garden. Years of manipulation by Malcolm had taught Lena to find her purpose in serving others, but then he had tormented her by refusing to allow her to act on that purpose. Miriam had fed Lena's need to serve in the best way possible, by taking Lena's natural gift for organizing people and putting it to use in her service. All of the prodigious talents she had exercised as a CEO now came into play in her role as Miriam Seneschal, but she threw herself into her work with an even greater fervor, because she was doing it in service to her mistress. Love, talent, and duty had combined into one, and that made Lena fearless. The thought filled Miriam with a fresh surge of affection for the woman. She reached down and gently lifted Lena's chin, directing her eyes to Miriam's own. Lena's mind opened before her as their eyes met, and Miriam poured into her all of the love and pride that Lena had inspired in her. The half-elf soaked up the wordless praise like a plant soaked up sunlight. The fatigue and worry vanished from her in an instant. You have served me well, Seralina. This misfortune with Peter and Sarah is no failure of yours. You are my strong right hand, and you have never faltered. Lena beamed. Thank you, mistress. Miriam beckoned for her to rise, and she did so. Mistress, what if we let them stay together? It would be inconvenient in some ways, but it might be a lot more humane than breaking them up. She shrugged. We might even find some uses for a pair of psi-bonded thralls, depending on how far their range is, if we can teach them how to multitask. I see what you mean, Miriam said, nodding. She frowned, thinking hard about the possibilities. Right now, Peter and Sarah were doing everything in unison, but if their fused mind could learn to separate tasks into one body or the other, they might be able to turn it to their advantage. For one thing, it would theoretically be an untraceable and instantaneous communication system. Anything observed by one thrall would immediately be known by the other as well. Peter had been a fairly gifted telepath, so the range on their mind link could prove considerable. Assuming that the rules of telepathic range had any meaning at all for members of a true gestalt. It's worth trying, Miriam said at last. Can we afford to keep them here full time? Sure, Lena said. I can put them on housekeeping duty until they figure out how to make their bodies act more independently. You have plenty of other thralls now that I can send out for errands. If you can cover up Peter's absence from the hive, we can keep them here. Miriam nodded. I'll think of something. Her eye drifted over to the phone on her desk, where she saw the message light flashing. Go ahead and tell Peter and Sarah what I've decided. It seems I have other business to attend to. Lena bowed. At once, mistress. She let herself out while Miriam crossed to the desk and called up the message. Good morning, Miriam. The voice of Malcolm Ardvalos said from the phone. His voice carried the tone of paternal indulgence he favored in dealings with his subordinates. 
I know it's likely to be rather late before you get this message, but I'd appreciate it if you would pay me a visit before you retire. Call my secretary when you're on your way. I'll meet you in the parlor. Miriam stared at the phone. Malcolm hadn't summoned her for a meeting in three months, and now he had called her personally? And just left a message? What could be so important that he wouldn't arrange it through his secretary, yet so unimportant that he wouldn't contact her on her mobile? No, not unimportant, she realized. Just not time-sensitive. Mobile phones can be traced. Calls can be monitored. It's important, but security matters more than speed. She looked at the clock. It was 10.30 in the morning, an ungodly hour for a vampire to be awake. Despite his casual tone, she knew that she had better get over there right away, before she cut into any more of his sleeping schedule. She called Malcolm's secretary to announce herself, and then hurried up to the penthouse. And that's the end of Chapter 49. Come back next time, when Malcolm has some new orders for Miriam. Diane Setterfield said, For nearly sixty years I have eavesdropped with impunity on the lives of people who do not exist. So, let's see what I've overheard this week. It's time for the Weekly Writing Report. This update covers the week of October 16th through October 22nd. I wrote 2,883 words this week, over the course of 4.25 hours, for an average writing speed of 678 words per hour. I wrote on 4 out of 7 days this week. This week I returned to work on my Alex story, Out of the Shadows. I added over 2,200 words to the manuscript over the course of three days, taking advantage of being at the lab to work on writing during my lunch break. Getting back into the story wasn't as hard as I had feared it would be, after such a long break. The characters still feel vibrant and alive to me, and it's fun spending time with them. The trick is going to be rebuilding the habit of writing every day carving out the time for my fiction regardless of whatever else is happening. It won't be easy, but I know I can do it. Over on the Patreon campaign, we had two new patrons join us in October. Please welcome Robert and Zev. If you like this show and want to help me keep making it, becoming a patron is the very best way to support me. Roughly 90% of what you pledge goes directly to me, which is a higher percentage than for any other income stream. Plus, having regularly scheduled support means I can pay for things like web hosting, file distribution, writing and accounting software, and sweet new Metamore City artwork. In return for your support, you get access to things like bonus artwork, author commentaries on past episodes, and the first drafts of new books as I'm writing them. This month, our $3 patrons and above got a special preview of the artwork for the special Honor of Bellevue Omnibus Edition. If you'd like to see it yourself, go to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester to get started. Take a look at the donation tiers and choose the one that's right for you. 
You can donate monthly or pay for an entire year up front and get one month for free. And in many parts of the world, you can even make your pledge in your home currency, so you don't have to worry about conversion fees or shifting exchange rates. That's patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. Huge thanks to everyone who's already a patron. I couldn't do this without you. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And our Discord server is Metamore City. I'm there pretty often, so come say hi. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podchaser.com. It really helps people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2021 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.